a lot of them. Ice on me, I'm popping. Try and get like me. How's it going, everybody? Happy Friday. We've got episode 43 with Griffin Spolansky, who is the founder and CEO of Mescla. Um, awesome guy, recently got connected with. Uh, more importantly, I, I love your product. Um, going after the, you wouldn't call it a, a protein bar. How would you describe Mescla and, and kind of what you guys are building? <laughs> yeah, great question. Actually, we just wrote something out, so I'm gonna read this verbatim and then I'll talk about it a little bit after but I'm Amazing. pretty confident with, uh, with what we came up with. So I'm just going to read this. Uh, Mezco is a plant-based snack brand making flavorful, feel-good foods convenient. And by that, we mean we're working to end snacking autopilot. We're focused on delivering an exciting snacking moment, one that our consumers look forward to. And we're doing so by sourcing ingredients like cocoa from Peru, chili from Mexico, matcha from Japan, creating, an exci creating exciting flavors with these ingredients, and actually coming soon, giving back a percentage of profits to the countries we're sourcing from. So all this to say, our consumers should enjoy the flavors of our bars and should feel good inside and out when eating our product. So obviously I read that verbatim, but I think you know the biggest takeaway for us is that we're really trying to create this snacking moment in a category that seems like it's kind of on autopilot at this point. And I will say, you know, obviously beautiful packaging and brand um, you know, let you speak to some of the artists that you're celebrating with the QR codes, which I thought was really unique from a packaging perspective. And then on top of that, um, there's a, I can't remember what it was, but when I was a kid, there was a product that it reminds me of. And maybe you can like nostalgia is always where I think that, you know, yeah. those are where home run products are. Can you remind me what product had the chocolate layered on the bottom? It wasn't nature's Valley. Is it, it's, I'm, I'm blanking. What, what would be the closest comp to this? Truthfully, we actually compare ourselves most to a Rice Krispie treat. Um, okay, that's that's, really that's exactly see, right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's really yeah. where we see you know the taste uh, comparing to, and uh, a lot. Of, it's funny, you know, a lot of consumers are actually saying that as well. So we're hearing the same feedback externally that we are internally. So that's always good to hear. Um, and yeah, I guess just to touch on your point, David, quickly. Uh, right now, the QR code essentially leads to a different piece of user-generated art every week, um, and I think the QR code for us has been really successful in the sense that two things. One, when we launched, a lot of people didn't really know what QR codes were, but given you know everything that's happened with COVID and a lot of restaurants using QR, it's been you know much more heavily adopted. Uh, so people are actually much more familiar with QR now than when we launched, that's interesting. And our real goal with QR is to engage our customer at point of sale. I think that you know in this industry, it's really difficult. I mean, it's almost virtually impossible to engage your customer at the shelf and we're working really hard to do that with that QR code. So we have some exciting things in the pipeline. And one that I mentioned is, you know, really being able to tell that ingredient story more as well. Um, so, you know, we get our cocoa from Peru. We get our matcha from Japan. Let's talk to our consumers about it. Let's tell them, you know, where we get it from, what farms we get it from. And also on top of that, we're going to be giving back to those places as well. So I think it ties in really nicely to everything we're doing. It's awesome, man. And the site is beautiful as well as uh, the products. I mean, my personal favorite was the peanut butter, uh, the Peruvian cocoa. Phenomenal. Um, but before, you know, we we kind of hear on on how you got into this, I'd love to learn a bit of it, a little bit more about you, uh, your background. Yep. Um, you know, have you have you always had uh, interest or excitement about CPG and food and beverage or, you know, where did you kind of start your career and how did you end up um, in, in the healthy snacking category? Yeah, great question. Well, I mean, this really is the start of my career, right? So I graduated from the University of Virginia uh, a year and a half ago. 
So, I mean, this was really the first thing I did right out of college. Um, that said, I've always been really intrigued and excited by food. Um, I was actually planning on going into the hospitality industry uh, before starting med school. So that was really my goal. Uh, so food's always been something really important to me. Uh, I actually, when I was like 13, started a dressing company, uh, bottling my grandmother's dressing. It lasted for like a week. It was at farmer's markets and we got shut down because we had no food handlers license. But uh, I guess to answer your question, food's always been something that I've been interested in um, and entrepreneurship kind of runs in my blood. Like my grandfather was an entrepreneur, my uncle's an entrepreneur, my dad's an entrepreneur. So it's something that I've always been, you know, interested in uh, and exposed to from a young age. Any in food and beverage or across all categories? Yeah, not in food and beverage, you know, clothing, uh, airfare, um, technology, but not, not in food and beverage. So this is definitely, definitely a new endeavor for sure. And were you eating a similar product? Were you looking for one in college? Like why Mescla? What got you to say, okay, I want to really think about protein bars, indulgence. Uh, were you filling a need or, you know, what, what, where was the natural affinity to say, I'm going to go build a, a, a plant protein bar company? Yeah, that's a great question. So I was actually in a social entrepreneurship class in college uh, and we had a guest presenter. Her name was Kogo Sotelo. Uh, she immigrated from Mexico 15 years ago and what was interesting is, you know, she really loved food and she was really passionate about food and just being like that, that foodie that I am. I actually ran out of the class after she finished presenting, just, you know, wanted to talk to her a little bit more about food, like why she was so passionate about it. And I also knew that I was interested in the industry in some capacity. So we just started, you know, kind of talking and she had a small food business, a small CPG business. So it was in granola actually. Um, and, you know, what we were kind of talking about was like, could we integrate flavors from her hometown of Mexico? into her products, like can we integrate flavors from around the world into products in general? And, you know, we just essentially landed on the protein bar space because we felt as though, even though the market was saturated, if we were to launch a product and it were to be successful, like it could have, you know, very good viability in in the protein bar market itself. So um, I would I will honestly say looking back, like maybe that was somewhat flawed thinking because it is a very difficult space, but at the same time, you know, if we can get consumer adoption, I think it's, it's a really strong space as well. So uh yeah. so where, where do you begin how do you even start uh, yeah. i think that some you know a million people have ideas and want to uh you know really go the food and beverage industry i think is it's sexy it's glamorous a lot of capital flowing in some yeah. exits that you know headlines of people raising a ton of money um but one of the biggest challenges is like where do you even begin when you have an idea like so you had yeah. you had seen her and were impressed by her background but where where did you kick off yeah, so like I started going over to her house. Actually, I met her family, met her husband, her daughters, and we just started like talking about ideas. Uh, and we started making everything. To your previous question, we were making chips, we were making granola, we were making protein bars. We were just trying everything, and that was like one of the most frustrating processes of my life, truthfully, because it took six to eight months, and we would make a product that we were so proud of, and then a week later it would go moldy, right? Like no one really thinks about that, but you can create a great product that tastes good for two or three days, but like doesn't have longevity on shelf. And that was what we were really struggling with. So we were playing around for six to eight months by ourselves. And finally, you know, after some time, we decided it was time to, uh, to go to a food scientist. So that's kind of how things progressed. So you had an MVP and then yeah. found a food scientist. And then did you start seeking out co-packers? Um, did you think maybe, you know, in terms of differentiation, some people, they create such unique processes that the co-packers can't do what you do. Yep. Was there any issue there or did you actually find someone that could manufacture exactly what you guys wanted to make? Yeah. So I think you're probably talking about your story, right? It was probably pretty difficult for you to find a co-packer. 
fortunately for us, the food scientists that we were working with actually worked at the co-packer previously. So it was pretty seamless, actually, the transition and the handoff from the food scientist to the co-packer. Um, that said, I mean, the process with me and Kogo took six to eight, eight months in her apartment or in her house. And the process with the food scientist to the co-packer also took six to eight months because we wanted to use a very different kind of base. We wanted to use the pea protein crisp base. And there are basically no other products in the market that use that. Because, you know, if, if you take it in its, in its base state without anything else on it, it doesn't taste great. Um, you know, it's a little bit too crunchy, a little bit like, you know, really pea tasting. Um, so, I mean, it was really difficult to work with, but, uh, you know, we figured that out obviously over time. And then your official launch date was when? Uh, so it was a year and a half later. It was August, 2020. So August, 2020, you guys launched in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, um, crazy. what were some of your biggest key learnings? You're, you're coming up on like eight months being live now. Yep. Key learnings for other people launching in, in the space, um, you know, mistakes or things that you might pass forward to other founders or entrepreneurs that want to build companies like key learnings, things you thought about the space, didn't realize until you actually did it, um, you know. Yeah, yeah, good question. So I was actually uh, talking with Adam Brown on one of, his, one of his podcasts like six months ago, and I didn't. I, I felt like I didn't want to make any mistakes at that point. And since then, I've made a ton of mistakes. So I think the first mistake I would, I would say uh, or first thing to avoid, I guess, is thinking that the job's done once you get your product into a retail store. And I posted about this on LinkedIn, actually, you know, I think a week ago. But for me, initially, it was like, let, once we sell in a store, like, let's move on, let's sell into another store. And I didn't realize how much you actually have to support the store to make sure your product sells through well. Uh, you know, I, I think that I kind of fell into the misconception that our boxes are going to look so good on shelves and our flavors are so unique, like they're just going to fly off. And the fact of the matter is, in a big grocery store, someone isn't going in to buy a medical bar yet, right? So like we need to make sure that we can get them to that aisle by doing things like off shelves, uh, by doing, you know, social promotions, giveaways, by doing TPR. So there are a bunch of things that I didn't really take into account until only recently, honestly. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, they think, okay, we make this incredible product. Yeah. It's so hard to win over a retailer to give you that yeah. real estate. Boom, goes into the store, easy. Now more stores, more sales. Yeah. Um, you can get discontinued in six to eight months. Uh, yeah. You can get tossed off the shelf even faster if it's not moving. Um, and I think that that's probably for me too. I had no idea that you need uh, soldiers. You need people in the field. You need to support yeah. the turns. You got to check those shelves every week. Um, fully agree with that. And, you know, something that I, I learned uh, the hard way as well. Um so I guess another thing is you guys are really strong on D2C, Amazon, um, plus retail. Um, what tips or pointers might you have? Beautiful website. Uh, how you think about D2C playing into your category specifically in, in protein bars. How you've maybe taken insights from RX Bar, Cliff Bar, um, other successful case studies in the space and what allows you to you know find your sweet spot right now. Yeah, good question. So from a business standpoint, I actually tried to model our – you know, whole website kind of off of Verb, uh, Verb Energy. I think they do a really good job. Um, and fundamentally, kind of looking back, I think that there's some differences in our business. So I don't know if that was, you know, necessarily the best decision. But I think, you know, we launched with a free trial because we just wanted to get the product into people's hands, which is something that Verb did really well. Um, we wanted to have a pretty low price point. Um, so we launched with, you know, $25 eight pack outside of the, the free trial offer. So we were just trying to make sure that we could get our product into people's hands. I think that's something that's really important, especially, you know, with a launch 
because uh, no one knows our bars yet. So let's just get this product out and let's get it into people's hands. So I was really focused on like that seamless and like kind of cheap experience. And by cheap, I don't mean like overall like look and feel cheap, but just I mean like get it into the customer's hands for the cheapest price possible. Um, so that's what I was really striving for. But on top of that, I wanted to put our own twist on it. And, you know, that's what you see with the graphics. I really wanted to be, you know, that brand that created the moment for the consumer like I was talking about earlier. Um, so the goal was really like, let's do something that's differentiated. Let's do something that's really cool that people are going to be able to resonate with. And let's be a bar in a saturated category that really shakes it up. So I think, you know, overall, I would say just trying to get the product out there for, you know, as low price as possible and also trying to make the space, you know, fun and exciting. I love your timing on QR codes, because to be frank, before COVID, like as much yeah. as I liked QR codes, I rarely use them. They've yeah. now become an ingrained part of, you know, consumer habits because of restaurants. Have you thought about NFTs and, you know, digital art or monetizing that QR canvas um, a little bit more? Yeah, someone else brought this up to me last week. Um, but honestly, I have not thought about that at all yet. Um, well, we, maybe we'll talk about it offline. Exactly. Have some yeah. yeah, there's de definitely definitely like opportunity there for sure. So, Okay. Um, but just uh, to touch base, and, and Stephanie, you're the best. Thanks for tuning in. Um, you know, you guys give 2% of your profits back to underserved, underserved schools um, to fund vital art programs. Um, that's pretty amazing. I didn't know that. And then just the way that, so you're showcasing a new artist every week or month or how does it work exactly? Yeah. So every week we actually throw up a new, new artist on the, uh, on the website and you can check that out. Actually, if you go to the Mezcal Movement page and kind of scroll through, you could see each artist that we featured. Um, so art was really, you know, a very core part of our brand as we went to launch and obviously, you know, giving back was as well. So we've given back to the Youth Art Exchange in San Francisco. We've given back to Charlottesville City High School um, as well. You know, two two really awesome programs. Um, and I think you know, uh, launching a brand right now, I think it's really important that there is a social mission attached to it. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of people build a brand to be successful, uh, you know, and to be profitable. But at the same time, like it's really important to us to make sure that we're giving back. And you know, inherently, we launch in a social entrepreneurship class, so it's kind of part of our DNA. So in your social entrepreneurship class is like, where did the inspiration for like, are you personally tied to the art world? Uh, did, are you excited about it? Where did that uh, concept come from? That's a great question. So, you know, I was touching on this in, at first, but uh, we're actually going to shift that give back truthfully. Uh, we're going to focus more so now on giving back to the communities we source the ingredients from. And we feel as though that tells a better story and just more on brand for us. Um, so that, that's a great question, truthfully, and, and we're working through that right now. Um, the art piece was something that Coco and I just discussed, um, and it's something that, you know, in Charlottesville and in Charlottesville City High School, um, we just had a connection to them. I had a connection to one of the teachers. Uh, you know, Coco had two daughters that were in Charlottesville as well, and we just felt the art piece was a way to kind of highlight people and individuals, and our whole goal was to, like, you know, bring these cool flavors to the market. So we thought it'd be cool to also like highlight people from around the world as well through art. So that's where that initially came from, but we are going to be shifting that a little bit in the future. Amazing. Amazing. Um, so with where you're at now, what, what are your plans for 2021 retail yep. D2C Amazon? You know, what can we expect to see? Um, and then in, in for the rest of this year. Yeah. Well, uh, we just launched in the fresh market last week, which is a, uh, Quite exciting for us a pretty big retailer 
Uh, Congratulations. For us. Thank you. Yeah, so we're pumped about that. So that's definitely a partnership that we're working hard to make sure that, you know, it's successful. Um, also, Erewhon, we launched in a few months back, and it's really important that we're successful there. Uh, to answer your question, retail, we're really going to be focused in L.A., outside of the fresh market. We're really going to be focused in L.A. and New York City and building our customer base there and building our retailers in those two locations. Um, you know, I think another kind of misconception I had at first going into the industry was like, let's get into every store, like all across the nation. And it's really difficult to service those stores. So we have a great merchandising team out in uh, Los Angeles that's going to help us there. Uh, and then in the city, we're talking with a few people now to kind of help us on this side of the, the country as well. So I think for us retail wise, it's like, let's let's take over New York City, let's take over LA, and then we'll grow from there. Uh, and then e-com and Amazon, we're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing tremendous retention. People really like our product and we're seeing great lifetime value. Um, so on that front, it's really just pumping more money into ads, honestly. When you talk about Amazon versus D2C, I've heard people say, don't do Amazon. It's too expensive. You need 12 months of purchases and transactions and reviews to get any sort of placement and or huge pockets, deep pockets. Um, and you get none of the data over time. I've also heard a nice mix of D2C plus Amazon or just D2C only or Amazon only. What's your take after what you experienced? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm still young, so there's not, I don't know a ton. So my, my take on it truthfully is like the category is so saturated. I think it's all about getting distribution and getting the product into people's hands. So yes, we're not getting the data, but there are also a lot of people we wouldn't be reaching if we didn't have, you know, our bars in Amazon. So my thought is like, Let's continue doing e-com. Let's do really well on e-com. Our numbers have honestly only gone up since we've been on Amazon. Uh, and then let's also be on Amazon as well. Sure, we might not get the data, but people are familiar with the product and that's something you know in and of itself. Awesome. What's the long-term vision for Mescla? Product extensions, uh, you know, platform brand, uh, you know, where where does Mescla go in the next five to ten years? Yeah, great question. So, you know, the way I kind of introduced the brand when I was reading that, that document verbatim is we're, we're a plant-based snacking brand trying to end snacking autopilot. So it's not just a protein bar brand. We do have another flavor coming out this summer. We will have a, a fifth flavor after that coming out probably in the fall or the winter. Uh, and then from there, you know, we have definitely have some exciting innovation in the pipeline uh, that is outside of the protein bar category, but it's still focused on plant-based snacks uh, and bringing flavor to the snacking aisle. Do you currently have any favorite strategies for brand awareness, content creation? You're obviously a super creative guy with the QR codes. Um, I love the LinkedIn stuff that you've been doing lately. Uh, anything you would recommend that's done, you know, added tremendous value uh, from a brand awareness, content marketing uh, perspective? Because I genuinely think that is probably the biggest advantage that emerging brands have is that ability yep. to create a voice across channels. So what's working for you right now? Well, first off, I, I think you posted something up that's on LinkedIn, but like, just, just do it. Like, don't, don't wait uh, and plan for, you know, a year, two years. Just like, if you have a brand, go out and be on all the platforms. And, you know, we have a TikTok and we were just putting content up every day. Not, not, not a lot of likes, not a lot of views. And then yesterday we had a, a video that, you know, had 35,000 views. So I think well, the first thing I would say is just like, just as long as the content's on brand, just like put content out. So that's number one. Um, and then I guess on top of that, to answer the question, um, actually now I've, now I completely actually spacing the question. Could you, could you repeat the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's all good. Yeah. It's all good. Um, so TikTok, I agree. It's a volume game, 35,000 views. I guarantee you, if you keep going for the next three months, you'll have a multi-million view opportunity. Um, 
my question is, you know, I've seen you do LinkedIn content recently. Are you guys dabbling with a clubhouse with Facebook? It, You're yeah. doing Facebook or Instagram ads. What's working for you right now, April 16, 2021, that you could recommend for other emerging brands to take a look at? Yeah, I think honestly, just like being genuine and true to our voice. So like we kind of have a, a really human and funny approach to how we take on content. Uh, and I think that's really working for us. So a lot of our brand is built off of like two-way conversations. You can text us at any time. A real human person will respond to you. Um, I think that's really resonating with our consumer because they feel like they can trust us and they can talk to us and they can. And I think that's where we're seeing the most success. Like when we're honest and genuine and not salesy, that's when we're doing really well. When we, you know, post salesy stuff, we don't really see a big uptick in likes, a big uptick in comments. It's really when we try and like connect with our consumer and be honest and genuine. And I think that that's the way a lot of brands are going these days as well. Like consumers want transparency. Consumers want to be able to have those conversations with the brand. So I guess in a nutshell, it's really just being able to talk with our consumers as opposed to talk at them. Awesome. And then I got, we got a great comment from Jordan White's uh, love that in the shelf article. Thanks for the inclusion, by the way. Uh, super cool. Um, Griffin, what are your thoughts on secondary cities, tier two cities like Austin, Portland, Nashville versus just going after the competitive LA, New York sets? I'll share after, after you do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's a really intelligent strategy, honestly. Um, we're just not focused on that right now. We just have such a great merchandising team in LA that I really trust. And I'm here in New York city. So it's a little bit easier for us because we have boots in the ground to focus on those two places. But truthfully, like very smart strategy to focus on places that are less saturated that you can be more successful in. So, I mean, I definitely do not disagree with that strategy by any means. Uh, just because we have boots in the ground in LA and New York, it makes more sense for us to be, you know, in those two places right now. And I guess to add to that, we've seen tremendous success in our Erewhon launch. So we only want to fuel the fire in LA specifically. So Jordan, my opinion, we actually right now for 21 are going really aggressive with ASMs in the Southwest, in the Pacific Northwest, haven't touched Nashville yet, but also in the South with some new launches coming in this, uh, under in the Sun Belt. Um, so um, fully agree. We feel like we've built a nice base in LA and New York now, and we're tripling down on those tier two markets because we think we can dominate and, uh, and really perform well, have even added ASMs in those specific regions, even with when it's retailers like that only have 30, 50 doors, et cetera, um, because we think that there's an opportunity to just really feed into a nationwide presence. Um, so anyway, that's that. Um, epic. Well, well, Griffin, ha can, have there been any really tough times um, or moments that you can share advice for other founders? Yes, this industry is amazing and I, I don't want to do anything else for the rest of my life professionally, but maybe things that you, um, wisdom that you've learned, uh, you know, things that you would do differently that you could pass on to anyone who might want to take a go at this and, and really try and build a brand. Yeah, well, I think first off, like food's extremely difficult. I just think from a margin standpoint, like if you're looking at food versus, you know, like for tech, for example, or even, you know, lower end, you know, jewelry, one of our investors actually uh, built the watch brand. And, you know, you're looking at the margins on something like that, they're much higher than the margins in, in the food space. Um, so I think that right off the bat, you know, you need capital to grow quickly in the food space and you need a lot of capital to grow quickly. So I think that like that's just one thing to point out. Uh, but I mean, every day is a struggle, right? Because we don't have a lot of people working on our staff. We're a very small team. Uh, we're working to build pretty aggressively. So, I mean, every day it's just us in a room trying to figure out how can we grow and where can we grow? And we're, we're making mistakes every day. 
Um, so I guess there's not like one point in time that I can point you to say like, this was the biggest mistake we made. This was going to crash our business. Cause you know, I think we've, we've done quite well so far, but I will say like every day I'm nervous that, you know, something's going to happen or that we're going to get bad reviews on Amazon and we're going to start selling worse on Amazon. I'm checking Shopify sales every day. So it just, it's definitely stressful. And, and, you know, the margins are not as, as sexy as, you know, some other industries. How big is your team right now? Uh, so we're about four people. Uh, three or four people working on this basically on a daily basis. And then we have, you know, a bunch of outside contractors, but I mean, no, no one's, no one's really full time except for me and one other person. So definitely, definitely pretty small. I would say it's pretty, another thing that I've learned is you can build a pretty sizable business with a lean team. I mean, we're four full-time employees right now. Yeah. Um, yes. We have contractors, consultants. I, I personally love the idea. We have like six consultants and then a lot of our consultants begin as consultants and convert to full time. So many people are like, man, I got to hire this yeah. person, this person, this person. But that's huge cash outlays exactly. versus you can have like a, a, a trial period. Um, and sometimes a consultant's great for two months and then, you, you know, you can move on. Um, super cool, man. Well, Griffin, you are a legend. Thank you for making yeah. time for coming on. Um, I personally am a huge fan of your product. So uh, keep up the amazing work. Let's stay in touch. And uh, yeah, man, have, have a great rest of your weekend. Awesome. Well, David, thanks for having me on. This was, this was really cool. And uh, any, any questions or anything, obviously, uh, if anyone wants to email me, anyone that's watching, you can shoot me an email at griffin at eatmesco.com. And I'm happy to, uh, to answer any questions that anyone may have. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Have a, have a great rest of your weekend. Thanks, David. Appreciate it, man. Cheers.